Hooray! You may be um, you may be asking yourself as uh, Tori finished playing right there, where are the Christmas songs? Um, and I would say this: the Christmas songs are right where they belong. It is not even Thanksgiving yet. Uh, last last Thursday, I think I turned on the radio to one hundred four point whatever. I just I jumped through the radio stations looking for something that I want to listen to, and there was Christmas music on. And it's like it is too early, too early. Christmas songs start after Thanksgiving. Um, in any case, that's just personal cultural rant over. Um, I feel like I feel like they're trying people are trying to accelerate my life when I go into Walmart. It's like why is Christmas stuff out already, you know? Like I need stuff with turkeys on it right now. Um, anyway, not that I ever shop for anything that has a turkey on it. I don't know what I'm talking about. Anyway, all right. All right. We're going to we're going to we're going to pray. Uh, Matthew chapter 6 is we're going to be reading from this morning and um, Oh, hey, if you have an opportunity, I just, somebody last week, somebody somebody texted me and said, I want to meet you. Where are you going to be? And I said, I'll be at Dunkin' Donuts. This was Monday. And the guy showed up and he handed me this new Bible, which just, okay, I'm a book geek here. It smells so good. If you want to smell, let, let me know. If you think that's weird, then... Either you don't know books or it's okay. We'll, we'll keep our distance. But if you want to smell, come and ask me. And by then I'll probably forget that I offered, but uh, it'll, it'll be okay. Uh, we're going to read Matthew chapter 6 uh, from verses 5 to verses 13, and then we're going to pray and we'll turn to God's word. Let's pray, or let's read, rather. Matthew chapter 6. Starting in verse 5, Jesus says, When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come before you and to hear your word. And we thank you that you speak to us whenever we open your word. The Bible says in John chapter 16 that the Holy Spirit convicts concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And so when we hear your word, whether it's read or proclaimed from a pulpit or whether we read it with our own eyes or we see it in an email after someone's signature, Lord, you, the Holy Spirit, are present and are speaking to us, and we thank you for that amazing, incredible gift, because the Bible teaches us how it is that we know you and live in right relationship with you through Jesus. It teaches us when we've strayed from the path. It screams at us like a warning sign. It, it shows us how to, how to repent from our sins and to put our faith and trust in Christ again and again and again. And it teaches us how to avoid future sin and how to live in complete and total dependence on you. And so we thank you for your word. It is a precious and wonderful gift. Father, we pray now that we would open our ears, lower our defenses, and receive your word with grace and humility, that we might be changed and transformed. We pray that as we, as we come to the point of, of this 
of this prayer where Jesus speaks of our needs, that we would keep that in focus and check, knowing that, that three petitions have come beforehand, three petitions which form the foundation of this prayer, the focus of it, your will, your way, your kingdom. But now as we turn to need, Father, I pray that we would not be bashful, that we would not think that that prayer is something that is only to be focused on you and your glory, but there comes a point where we can say, I need this. And you are pleased because you are our Father. And you've asked us to come to you and to ask. Jesus taught us to pray this way, and so we pray that we would embrace it boldly, humbly, and joyfully. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Speak to us now, we pray. Amen. Uh, I'm not so sure that we can carry through on on this desire, but I I think it would be helpful to put away a a bad tradition. Uh, I, I noticed it in myself growing up, and I notice it as a parent now that I'm passing this on to my children. There's this thing that happens when a relative that you haven't seen in a while shows up, or, or when relatives that you're, you're expecting or hoping will show up on, on your birthday or Christmas, right? This is, this is what happens when you're, when you're a young child and, and the inhibitions aren't built up yet. When, when your relative shows up, you say, did you bring me something? right? Did you, did you bring me something? And as, and as a young child, you, you look and there is your mom or your dad and they're like, stop it, right? Be polite. And now as a parent, I'm like, don't, don't say that. You know, my kids will call their grandma and say, can I have 150 bucks for soccer cleats? And I'm like, you did what? <laughs> don't do that. Now, the reason we don't do this is because uh, when as adults, we experiencing somebody asking, 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 we, we begin to feel taken for granted, or we feel like requests are inappropriate, and so we want to stop that and shut that down, right? We don't, we don't want people to be offended. Uh, the good news of, of coming to God with our requests is that Jesus teaches us first in, in the prayer to focus on the Father, but then to ask, and specifically to ask for three definite things. And, and we can know if we pray these prayers, if we ask in this way, if we take the prayer not as a, uh, a religious formula to be recited, but if we, if we take it as our model or our pattern for how to pray, then we can know when we come to God and we say, I have a need, can you meet that need? He will smile at us with delight. And so we can at least put away the bad tradition of thinking it is wrong to ask God for things. If, if you feel hesitant or selfish or like it's inappropriate to bother God with your problems or your concerns, Jesus says, go ahead and do it. So let's take a quick look at the, at the Lord's Prayer. I think that it, it, it's, it's not that we need to correct everyone who calls it the Lord's Prayer, but it's been, it's been given to the disciples. It's been taught them as their pattern for prayer. It's been given to them as their model. And so this is not the prayer that the Lord prays. It's the prayer that disciples are to pray. Jesus teaches that we're to pray knowing that God is in secret and he sees what we're praying from the depths of our heart and that when we come to him in the way that he commands, that He will reward us, that he knows, it says in verse 8, what we need before we ask. And so we're supposed to come to him as a good, kind, and gracious father and say, Father, this is my heart and these are my needs. And that God will answer. Our focus is first to be on our Father in heaven. 
Just by way of review, you see the three commands, or the three petitions, rather, that focus on the Father first. And then we move to three petitions that focus on our needs, right? Give us, in verse 11. Forgive us, in verse 12. And lead us. But first, we see the focus on treating God with honor. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. When we pray that, as the kids' catechism that we put in the bulletin says, when we pray that, we're praying that, that we desire that God's name may be honored by us and all men. And we said that the prayer is to pray, I want to treat you, God, with the honor that you deserve. I want others to know and to live that way too. Let it begin with me. Second, the prayer, your kingdom come, is a prayer that that God bring his kingdom here on earth. We're praying that the gospel may be preached in all the world and believed on and obeyed by ourselves and all men. And so we're praying, God, build your kingdom here. Bring your future kingdom to earth. Expand your kingdom here and reign in me and begin with me. And then third, we're praying that, that all people, but specifically ourselves, live in the way that God calls us to. We pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Recall that, that God has a, a secret hidden will, right? Deuteronomy 29, 29. We mentioned this last week, that the things that are the Lord's belong to him. But there, so there are secret things that we cannot know. There are, there are, there are details that, that cannot be uh, found out. If God has a, a very specific plan for all things, and we believe he does, it's not like he wrote it down on a piece of paper and stamped it classified and put it in an envelope and tied it up and stuck it in a file cabinet somewhere that we can find. The will is hidden in secret and we cannot know it. But the Bible teaches that all the things that, that have been revealed to us are for us so that we may obey the words of God's law. Deuteronomy 29, 29. We see this repeated in the New Testament. 2 Peter 3.10 speaks about how God's will has been revealed to us, how God has revealed certain things to inform not our knowledge, not our ability to draw complicated charts about what the future will look like. This will be my universal answer, by the way. If you say, Pastor, do you think that this event right here could be the event that sets off the end times? Maybe. I, I don't know. I don't think it's my job necessarily to draw charts and plot that stuff out. I think all of our job is revealed in 2 Peter 3.10. Listen to what Peter says. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and all the works that are done on it will be exposed. We're not going to have to say, do you think that's it? Because we're going to know. Everything's going to be burning up. It's like, yes, this is it. But look at what Peter says in verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? God reveals future facts so that they might influence our present acts. Not just so that we'll have a head full of knowledge, but so that we will obey him from a whole heart. So that we will say, I don't, I don't do this out of slavish fear to earn your affection, but because I love you, I want to walk consistent with your will. What are we praying for in the third petition? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that men on earth may serve God as the angels do in heaven. Those are the, that's, that's the foundation of the Lord's Prayer, a focus on the Father and on his name, his kingdom, and his will. Psalm 40, verse 8, sums it up this way. I desire to do your will, my God. Your law is within my heart. 
Let's look at the, the three petitions that, that make up the need part of the Lord's Prayer. Verse 11 says, Give us this day our daily bread. When I was a little kid, we had these books in our church. I think we had them here for a while. I think we haven't had them since we moved. They're called Our Daily Bread. They're these little tiny pamphlets, right? And there's, a, there's like a verse for the day to read, and then there's like a devotional thought, and it's always like, you know, the bird was locked out in the, in the winter cold, and, and it found warmth here, you know, that sort of devotional thought. And it's like, that's the way that you're supposed to approach the Lord. You know, he's your, and then there's like a little phrase at the end of the page. And when I was a kid, I used to think, give us this day our daily bread. And I would think of those little books. You know, that's what this meant because they were there my entire life. I started going to First Baptist Church of Union when I was four. Forgive me. <laughs> anyway. Um, but the prayer, thank you for laughing. She's my biggest fan, yes. Um, she keeps me from feeling completely and utterly insecure at your lack of laughter. Give us this day our daily bread. Are we, are we simply praying that God will, will give us the bread that we need throughout the day. No, it's not that simple of a prayer. Um, what we're praying for, as the, the kids' catechism teaches, is that God will give us all things needful for our bodies. It's a focus, yes, on the physical needs of the believer. Bread, other places in the scriptures, means food. And the, Put yourself in the mind of an ancient, uh, of, a, of a person from the ancient world. They didn't have the banking system that we have. They didn't have safes and, uh, and, and bank statements and those kinds of things. And many people only had what they were paid that day to live on the next day. And so the worker of that day hold out his hand at the end of the day or would present the work that they had done and they would be given their wages and they would be then able to go and to purchase the food that they would need for the next 24 hours, for the next day. Give us this day our daily bread. For someone living in the ancient world, a few sick days would mean crisis not sitting in front of the television with a box of tissues, trying to stay hydrated, watching some TV series on Netflix. It would be anxiety and worry. How will we eat? And so there is an expression of complete and utter dependence here. You are the one who is in control. You are the one on whom I depend for my health and my ability. Please give me what I need today. But there's a, there's a larger and expanded sense here in which bread stands in for a symbol of living in dependence on God. Proverbs 30, verse 8 says, Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. The idea that, that, the, that the, uh, the writer is praying here is that God would supply what is needed, that he would balance and that he would, he would give and, and, and guide and, and administer what is needed with care. It's been said... You'll, you'll notice that the, that the writer says, give me neither poverty nor riches. It's been said that for every 10 who can handle the test of poverty, only one can handle the gift of wealth. And so what's being prayed here is, give me exactly what I need. Give me exactly what I need. But let's not forget the fact that the prayer also involves bread. It involves what we depend on to live that day. Imagine what would happen if the electricity went off. Just think about it. I don't mean here right now. I mean, if the electricity went off for any sustained period of time, do you know what this means? It means the computers stop running. It means the gas pump stops working. It means that in some sense, the trucks stop running. And you know what that means? There's no food. And we all of a sudden will start to think about fields and farms and where food comes from. Right now, our perception is food comes from where? The store. There are no animals out back, 
right? There are no people like putting individual frosted mini-wheats into boxes back there. It doesn't work like that. Meat does not come on little white or yellow plastic trays wrapped and refrigerated. Like it comes from someplace and the Lord is the one who controls the weather and the conditions in the field. And we sometimes think like, oh, tomorrow it's going to be rainy. And the farmers are out there thinking like some rain, but not too much rain, right? Keep these animals healthy so that they can go to market. They're living with a, with a clear sense of dependence on, on God and on the abilities that he's given them. And, and we, in a technologically advanced society are, are 10 or 15 degrees removed from that awareness. And yet, we need to understand that, that a couple of really bad days could, could put us back in a situation where we realize exactly how dependent we are. So, let's think about it this way. Let's pray that we learn to depend on God the easy way and not have to learn the hard way right? Let's just, let's just pray. Father, I know that I'm absolutely dependent on you because Pastor Keith gave that lecture about where meat and food comes from, and I already knew all that stuff, but I've forgotten over time, and so I come to you in a complete and total sense of dependence. Luke 11.3 says this truth this way, give us each day our daily bread. Give us what we need day by day. Help me to live independence on you. Matthew 6.34 teaches us to live this way. Jesus says, therefore, don't be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. We can plan and think about the future, and, and we can think, well, in a week or so, I'll do this or that if God wills, but the only thing that we can truly, really affect is now, isn't it? You don't know what's going to happen in a week. You don't know what's going to happen in a month. You honestly don't know what's going to happen in a couple of hours, but I am seriously hoping that the Redskins get crushed by the Packers. But I really don't know. But I will know by the end of the day. So today we pray for a positive result, right? We, we worry about today. I only need to worry about what is right in front of me. And I understand... That, that the Lord is in control, and so I pray that he would bless and give me what I need. We're to see God as the giver and the one who is in control, and we're to see things properly. Deuteronomy 8.18 says this, You shall remember that the Lord is God. It is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to you and your fathers as it is to this day. The goodness of God is seen in the ability that we have to work. It's not the ability that we have to work that earns us wealth. It is God sustaining us and supporting us. We're called to realize that we depend on him. 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says this, What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? There are many times that we, I, I think we look at uh, our lives as an 80-20 principle. Like I handle 80% or even 90% of my life and God handles the 20 or 10% of what I can't handle myself. But that's a wrong view because you really don't have 80% of your life locked down. You don't. You don't have it figured out. It's, it's, it's God who's there undergirding, supporting giving you the ability. Think of that, that verse that maybe some of us memorized in Sunday school as a kid, or, or it's one that, um, that we hear people say when they, when they talk about their favorite Bible verse, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, right? Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. But think about how we actually approach life. Do we really, in all our ways, acknowledge him? Do we ever lean on our own understanding? Sure we do. We lean on our own understanding in the ways in which we think we've got it all together. But Proverbs 
says, in all your ways acknowledge him. And so it's important that we carefully and regularly come before God and say, I need your gifts and your grace to make it through this and every day. I need your gifts and your grace to make it through this and every day. The book of James says that every good and every every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. It's not just turkey dinner that gives us an opportunity to thank God for his grace toward us. Right? Whatever it is that you eat, if it's pre-packaged food lion pizza that you buy on a Friday and throw into your oven, right? God is the one who did all the work to produce whatever it is that they make the crust out of now, because I don't, I don't think that's actually like bread, right? And that like cheese stuff, like whatever it is, God is the one who understands what that is and, and who, who makes the earth produce it. And when we say, man, this pizza is good, it's good because it came from him. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. This is what the Bible teaches. It says this in Psalm 104, 14. I'm going to mistranslate this. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he might bring forth bread from the earth and grape juice, it actually says wine there, to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. The psalmist says that everything comes from the Lord. Psalm 104, verse 27, these all look to you to give them their food in due season. Uh, I like to, to envision in that passage, like there are all the cows and they're all chewing on grass, but then all of a sudden they're all kind of looking up. They look to you for their, their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. Now, it's good to save. It's good to say, God's given me so much. I can, I can live on less. I can put some away for the future. But it's foolish to think that by bigging, building bigger barns that we somehow have weaned ourselves off of dependence on God. We can't wiggle out of a dependent lifestyle. God taught the Israelites this by telling them every day for 40 years you're going to go out and you're going to gather a basket full of manna. What happened to the ones who said, today, on Tuesday, I'm going to gather more so that I don't have to gather on Wednesday. Right On Wednesday, they woke up and their manna from yesterday was full of worms that had rotten. You can't live on yesterday's grace. You can't live free of dependence on God on Tuesday because you prayed on Monday. Each and every day were to come before the Lord and to say, today, depend on your grace. I need your gifts and your grace to make it through this day and every day. Now, just notice quickly that uh, the first three petitions are independent, right? Your name your kingdom, your will. These last three that focus on us, they are each linked with the word and, right? It, they're, they're not independent. They're all connected. We can't just think that we've done our responsibility by coming before God and, and praying, God, give me my food for today, and then we've prayed for all of our needs, right? No, they're all connected here. We not only need food, but we also need what shows up in 12 and verse 13. Verse 12 says, And forgive our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. The first petition is to pray this. I need your gifts and your grace to make it through this and every day. Second, we pray, I need your forgiveness and understand that I must also offer forgiveness. I need your gifts and your grace, but I also need your forgiveness, and I need to offer it as well. It is not enough to have food. 
Man's needs go beyond what he eats. Isn't this what Jesus said when he was tempted by the devil? He was hungry. 40 days without food. We could probably, you know, we think we're starving when we are hungry and we drive to Chick-fil-A and we discover that it's Sunday and it's closed and we're like, what are we going to do for lunch? We're starving. That's just a couple hours. Jesus was 40 days without food and the tempter comes and says, command these stones to become bread. And what does Jesus say? Man does not live on bread alone. He has needs that go beyond the physical. The second prayer is forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now is this primarily a financial transaction in focus? No. A couple, couple reasons why I think that. Although some people say, is this, is this about loans in the, in the sixth year prior to the cancellation year of the Sabbath? If you know what that's talking about from the, from the Old Testament law, it's not what that's about. The, the arguments for this are, are complicated and confusing, and, and, and on some level I think they're kind of silly, especially when you consider this. The prayer is asking God to forgive debts, debts that we owe to him. And I don't know about you. I've not figured out how to do this, right? Generally, if, if I need to borrow money, I go to a relative or to a bank because, you know, there's, there's no ability to con- conduct a financial transaction like this with God. Show me where that ATM is, and I will go there, right? Because it's never going to say insufficient funds in the machine, Right? Because God's not short on cash. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And since then, we've learned there are more than a thousand hills. We don't actually owe God any money. What we do owe him is a repayment of the debt that we incur when we sin against him. Luke 11.4 says the same prayer but uses different language. Luke says, forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Now think about the way that Paul uses this language in the book of Romans. He says this, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Right? Um, wages here uh, are, are, are paid when someone works. The wages are what is owed to them. The wages are counted not as a gift. It's not like when when you work for two weeks and you go in front of your boss and you say, hey, paycheck please, and your boss says, I'll do you a favor and write you a paycheck. No, no, no. You put in the time, right? And then your boss owes you that cash. You have, you have worked. You are owed that. If your boss says, no, I'm not going to pay you, you can go to a judge. The judge will bang the gavel, and you will get that money. If there's money there, it's what's owed to you. When we sin, we work. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. We have created a debt between us and God. We have not lived in the way that he's commanded us to, but instead we have refused to do what he tells us to do, and we've done things which he says don't do, and therefore we have created a debt. We have created a separation between us. We have worked, but we have not worked for what God would have us work for. Instead, we have heaped up guilt. Think about the way that guilt works. If you happen to be driving down, I think it's Camden Avenue, and you've passed by the college, because I guess they assume, whoever the powers that be, that that college students will speed, and, and college students have no money, and so it's not much of a revenue maker. But if you get into Fruitland right, where, where normal people live, there is this little box on the side of the road, right? It's got a little black glass piece on it. If you happen to drive past that thing going 45 miles an hour, it's very easy to be going 45 miles an hour 
when you're driving past that and that little shutter clicks and takes a picture of you, that picture is translated through the, the wonder of the internet to some supposedly police officer somewhere who's like, yes, Keith Meyer was driving too fast. And they, they, they draw little lines on those pictures and then they send it to you in the mail and they say, you owe us money. Because you, 40 bucks. And if you don't pay it, it's like 75 bucks. You know, it's like crazy. And then they charge you three bucks to go online and use your debit card. It's, it gets very expensive. <laughs> Drive slowly, kids. <laughs> so here's what happens. You can't, if you realize that you're speeding, slow down and try it again. Right? You can't be like, oh, I'll just, oh, I was going too fast. I'll loop around and I'll come past, like, and, and I'll go past it again. If you do that, you're foolish. Don't do that, right? You, you can't drive by at 25 and erase the stain of having gone 45. You are indebted already. You can't drive backwards. You can't erase it. It, it, it happened. It's there. And so when we sin, we create guilt. We create a debt, and that debt piles up and piles up and piles up, and we cannot, by doing good, cancel out the wrong that we've done. There's no undoing it. What we need is forgiveness for our debt. We need someone to say, I have paid that off for you. The good news is that's the gospel, right? The gospel is that though Jesus knew no sin, he became sin for us. He took the guilt of our sin upon himself, and he went to the cross, which is where we should go as sinners, and he took the blame and died on our behalf. He stood in our place, and then we get his righteousness when we say, yes, I want his death to count for me. That's the good news of the gospel. It is debt forgiveness. But there's a connected piece here. Look at what Jesus says at the end of the prayer. This, this makes people like crazy. They're like, <gasps> you know, is my salvation at risk here? Jesus says this. If you, this verse 14, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Again, the language there is, is one of, of violating a boundary or of being someplace that you shouldn't, right? It's, it's sin language, not legal debt language. There's a, there's a connection here, and there's a story in the New Testament that, that explains it. Jesus says in, in Matthew chapter 18 that, that there was a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. I don't know if he was going to die or if it was just that time of the year when they issue financial statements, but he's like, let's figure out how much money all my servants owe me. And when they started to settle, one of them owed 10,000 talents, which is like a lot of money more money than you and I have ever made. Let's just put it that way in its cultural context. Guys, guys back in that day were like, wow, that's a lot of money when he said 10,000 talents. And, and the guy couldn't pay it. And so the king says, sell him and his wife and his children and everything that he's got and give me whatever, you know, uh, uh, is the result of that. And it was probably like a drop in the bucket compared to what he owed. And so the guy falls on his knees in front of the king, and he says, have patience with me, and I'll pay you everything back, which, by the way, is impossible for this guy. But the king's heart is moved, and he says, all right, I forgive you. He releases him, and he forgives the debt. He cancels it out, right? That means that the king takes the debt himself. He, he has to cancel that out. He has to pay it out of his own money. And that guy is probably like, I will write a praise song to you, right? This is the greatest day ever. I'm going to walk through the city with a great big picture of you and say, this is the greatest king ever. 
So as he's going to get a pole and a piece of wood to nail the picture to and to find a piece of paper and a pen to write a song on, he sees a servant who owes him a hundred denarii. That's a hundred days wages, which is, uh, for the people who are hearing this for the first time, nothing compared to what he owed. And he sees that guy and he's like, what was I doing anyway? You know, like that guy owes me money. He goes, he grabs him, puts his hands around his throat and he starts choking him. And he's like, pay me what you owe me. Pay me, pay me, pay me. And the guy's like, and so the servant falls down in front of him. I guess the hands get off of the throat and he pleads and he says, have patience with me and I will pay you. And the guy says, no way. You are rotten and horrible. And he refuses to allow him any, any uh, leniency. And he goes out. He has the guy arrested and put in prison until he should pay the debt off. Now, there are a bunch of people who were there when the guy got forgiven his debt and who see this go on and they're like (gasps) we need to say something to the king so they go off and they tell the king and the king calls the guy in and he says you wicked servant i forgave you all of that debt because you pleaded with me you asked me to and i said yes shouldn't you then have had mercy on your fellow servant as i had mercy on you And so he turns him over to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Jesus says this, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. We not only need God's forgiveness on the regular, but we also need to extend forgiveness. Why? Because it's a statement of whether or not we really truly understand what's going on when we say, I need forgiveness. If we're unwilling to forgive another, if we don't understand that we're coming before God and asking for grace, which we do not deserve, it's not like we've got four quarters to put into the machine. You remember that? You used to line them up and then you'd like push the coins in and pull it out and a little plastic bubble would come out of the machine at the supermarket with like the ring or a little army guy with the parachute on it. It's not like we've got currency that we can actually pay, right? When I take my kids to the store and they see that thing, they're always like, do you have four quarters? And I'm like, it's 2016. I don't have four quarters. (laughs) You know, who carries change anymore? And some of you are like, I carry change. It's 2016, you know. And if you don't like giving your kids money to get stuff out of that, don't carry change. But, But here's the thing. You don't have the... I have, I have bought my kids stuff out of those machines, probably one for each kid. Anyway, uh, confession, I feel guilty suddenly. <laughs> we don't have anything to pay our debt before God with. We can't, we can't take a righteous work and say, like, here, take, take helping this person rake their leaves and cancel out my anger. It doesn't work like that. John Stott says this, once our eyes have been opened to see the enormity of our offense against God, the injuries which others have done to us appear by comparison to be extremely small. If, on the other hand, we have an exaggerated view of the offenses of others, it proves that we have minimized our own. The heart that truly recognizes that that, that the that, that, that says, I am a sinner and I need the grace of God, understands on some level that whenever somebody else says, forgive me, they say, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. I have been forgiven so much, so much. Yeah, that's not, that what you did to me, nothing in comparison to what I have done consistently, regularly, all my life to the God who made me. And if you're asking the question, is that true? Here's hope. 1 John 1, 9 says that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why is he faithful and just to forgive us? Because he promises that he will when we ask. And so we pray, I need your forgiveness and I understand that I must offer forgiveness as well. Finally, we pray, I need your protection and I desire your guidance. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us 
from evil. What do we pray for in that, that sixth petition that God will keep us from sin and from temptation? We pray for protection from our own desires. James 1.13 says this, Let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God. This is the correction, right? If you're anxious when you read, lead us not into temptation. If you're like, why would he lead me into temptation in the first place? Is he that kind of God? No. The temptation is, is rooted in our own desires. It says here, God cannot be tempted by evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Protect me, God, from my own desires. Protect me from my lack of self-control. 1 Corinthians 7, 5 speaks about, about the fact that, that we, we ought to live in a certain way so that Satan may not tempt us because of our lack of self-control. Protect us from suffering that might lead us to despair. Revelation 2.10 Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison so that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, God says, and I'll give you the crown of life. Help me to keep God's faithfulness and the fact that he will bring me relief in view all the time. We also need to understand that temptation is amplified and, as our African friends would say, pressurized by one who is craftier and smarter than we. Matthew 4.1, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Verse 4, or chapter 4, verse 3 says, the tempter came to him and said, and then he tempts Jesus. The impulse is within us. We're the source of it. Temptation comes from the evil one. 1 John 5.19 says, We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It's not clear, according to the text, whether what's being spoken of there is the evil one, that is Satan, or from evil in general. You could make a case for either. The Bible says in Luke 6.45, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces what? Good? No, evil. For out of the abundance of his heart, his mouth speaks. We're commanded, let love be genuine. Hate what's evil, hold fast to what's good. And so we pray to the Lord, don't lead me in a road that leads to temptation. The, the prayer might sound negative and cause anxiety to some, but it's really praying, God, put me on a path on a daily basis that leads me away from my sinful inclinations and away from temptation and trial. And if I encounter it, deliver me from it. Rescue me. Here's the good news. God has given us both his armor and wisdom that we might resist temptation. The Bible says in uh, uh, Ephesians chapter 6 to take up the whole armor of God. We see that in Isaiah 59, 17, that God himself wears armor symbolically. Isaiah 59, 17, he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. Those are, those are two pieces that we're told we have in Ephesians 6. God is letting us wear his armor. But we see in Romans 13 that we're told to put on, in verse 12 of Romans 13, the armor of light. But then verse 14 says this, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if we understand what's being said here, we're to come before God and to say, deliver me, guide me away from my own impulses and guide me in the way that I need to go so that I avoid sin and temptation. The prayer is that God would give one, give me a path free from temptation and take away the other. That he would take away testing and temptation and rescue us if they should come. We're wise if we ask the Father for deliverance from that which only Jesus could vanquish. You understand that of the, the temptations that take place in Scripture, Israel failed in the wilderness, but Jesus succeeded. Adam and Eve failed in the garden, but Jesus succeeded. And so we pray to God for wisdom 
which he promises to give to us in Christ to help us endure temptation and trial. And so let's, let's just close with a quick review of the prayer. Six statements that lead us through what Jesus teaches his disciples that they ought to pray, not word for word as if it's a magical spell that will give us uh, a wonderful day, but a prayer from the heart to ask God what we truly and really need from him. Here are the six petitions. I want to treat you with the honor that you deserve. I want you to build your kingdom here. I want to live in the way that you call me to. This is my heart's desire. Let the change that's coming to the world begin with me. That's the way we pray. And then we pray for our own needs. I need your protection and I desire your guidance. I need your forgiveness and understand that I will offer it as well. I need your gifts and grace to make it through this and every day. This is the way that Jesus taught us to pray. And so let's pray in that way. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you knowing that our first desire, and we struggle with this, would be that you would exalt yourself and accomplish your will. And second, we pray that we would come before you humbly asking for those things that we need, and we need so much. We thank you that you don't clutch your pearls in astonishment. You don't freak out when we come up to you and say, I need something. I want something. You live in secret, Jesus taught us, and you desire for us to come to you in secret and say, this is my need. And so we thank you that you're pleased. We thank you that you know what we need before we ask. And we pray, Father, that we would come before you in prayer in a way that's consistent with your will. I pray if there's anyone here this morning, Lord, who's trapped in sin and struggling, whether with the sin of unforgiveness or with a temptation that they grapple with on a daily basis, I pray that they would turn to you and put their faith and trust in you. You offer so many precious promises that you will come through at the point of our need. And so we pray that we would depend on you in the way that we ought, and we would pursue your glory, your will, and the honor of your name in the way that we ought. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing this closing song together.